illustrated manuscripts, some in gleaming bars buried in the dark cellars of central banks, a lot of it on fingers, ears, and teeth. There is a residue that rests quietly in shipwrecks at the bottom of the seas. If you piled all this gold in one solid cube, you could fit it aboard any of today's great oil tankers. Its total weight would amount to approximately 125,000 tons an insignificant volume that the U.S. steel industry turns out in just a few hours. A ton of steel commands $550, two cents an ounce, but the 125,000 tons or so of gold would be worth a trillion dollars at today's prices. Is that not strange? Out of steel, we can build office towers, ships, automobiles, containers, and machinery of all types. Out of gold, we can build nothing. And yet it is gold that we call the precious metal. We yearn for gold and yawn at steel. When all the steel has rusted and rotted, and forever after that, your great cube of gold will still look like new. That is the kind of longevity we all dream of. Stubborn resistance to oxidation, unusual density, and ready malleability. These simple, natural attributes explain all there is to the romance of gold. Even the word gold is nothing fancy. It derives from the Old English yellow, G-E-L-O, the word for yellow or golden. This uncomplicated chemistry reveals that gold is so beautiful, it was Jehovah's first choice for the decoration of his tabernacle. Thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. He instructs Moses on Mount Sinai, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. That was just the beginning. God ordered that even the furniture, the fixtures, and all decorative items such as cherubs were also to be covered in pure gold. God issued those orders many thousands of years ago. What is the place of gold in the modern world of abstract art, designer genes, complex insurance strategies, computerized money, and the labyrinths of the Internet? Does gold carry any significance in an era where traditions and formality are constantly crumbling beyond recognition? In a global economy managed increasingly by central bankers and international institutions, does gold matter at all? Only time can tell whether gold, as a store of monetary value, is truly dead and buried. But one thing is certain. The motivations of greed and fear, as well as the longings for power and for beauty, that drive the stories that follow are alive and well at this very moment. Consequently, the story of gold is as much the story of our own time as it is a tale out of the past. From poor King Midas, who was overwhelmed by it, to the Ali Khan, who gave away his weight in gold every year, from the dank mines of South Africa to the antiseptic cellars at Fort Knox, from the gorgeous artworks of the Scythians to the Korikancha of the Incas, from the street markets of Bengal, to the financial markets in the city of London. Gold reflects the universal quest for eternal life, the ultimate certainty and escape from risk. The key to the whole tale is the irony that even gold cannot fulfill that quest. Like Ruskin's traveler jumping off the boat, people take the symbolism of gold too seriously. Blinded by its light, they cashier themselves for an illusion. If gold were more plentiful on earth, say, as abundant as salt, it would be far less valuable and interesting, despite its unique physical attributes and beauty. Yet gold has been discovered on every continent on earth. 
That sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Although gold deposits are widespread, in one form or another, no one area has yielded its gold easily. Finding and producing gold demands immense effort relative to the amount of glittering yellow metal that makes its appearance at the end of the process. For example, in order to extract South Africa's annual output of around 500 tons of gold, some 70 million tons of earth must be raised and milled. This radically distorted ratio of effort to output appears to have done little to discourage people from pursuing the worldwide search for gold. Perhaps the most telling evidence of how highly prized, vital, essential, and irresistible gold has been from the earliest of times. Relative to the needs for it, gold does appear to have been more plentiful in ancient times, especially in Egypt and the Near East, than it has been since the Roman era. A little bit of gold goes a very long way when it is used only for adornment and decoration, and not for coinage or hoarding. Until the development of coinage, which put gold into the hands of the masses, and greatly expanded the need for it, most of the available gold was owned by monarchs and priests. Its use was ceremonial, in large part, a medium of advertising power, wealth, eminence, and proximity to the gods. Whatever was left was used for jewelry and other personal adornment. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai to deliver the Ten Commandments to his people, he found the Jews in a delirium worshipping a golden calf. He was so enraged to see them bowing to an icon that he smashed the tablets inscribed with the Word of God, the Ten Commandments, which he had just brought down from Mount Sinai. When Moses climbed Mount Sinai to receive the Word from God, God gave him a lot more to do than just transmit the Ten Commandments and many associated rules and obligations. God also issued precise directions for the construction of a sanctuary where the Jews were to worship him, together with a tabernacle to go inside the sanctuary. God began right off by specifying that thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. But Jehovah himself wasn't the first to use gold to inspire reverence. The ancient Egyptians probably set the style for later religions, including the Jews, to emulate. The Jews, with one god, had it easy compared with the Egyptians, who had two thousand deities to worry about, many of whom bore some relation to the all-powerful sun god. You can consume a lot of gold convincing everyone how powerful and all-knowing two thousand deities are. Christians, with only one god to worship, but several thousand saints to pray to, have faced similar problems. The use of gold in Egypt was a royal prerogative, unavailable to anyone but the pharaohs. That constraint facilitated the way that the pharaohs assumed godlike roles and authenticated their heavenly character by adorning themselves with the same substance that embellished their gods. Most of the gold of biblical times in ancient Egypt, approximately 4,000 years before Christ, came from the bleak and forbidding landscape of southern Egypt and Nubia. Nub is the Egyptian word for gold. Nubia continued to supply gold to the Western world well into the 16th century. According to one authority, the output of the Nubian mines far exceeded the quantity which was drawn from all the mines of the then-known world in subsequent ages, down to the discovery of America. The Egyptians had developed these mines from shallow ditches, but in time they cut complex underground shafts deep into the hills. The deeper the mines were cut, the greater the human pain that went on inside. 
The air in the shafts was fetid, constantly depleted by the tiny candles that barely illuminated the terrible darkness. The heat was intense. The earth frequently gave way, and subterranean water was a constant hazard. The fires used to crack the quartz in the rock released arsenic fumes that caused excruciating deaths among the many who inhaled them. The slaves had to work on their backs or sides, and were literally worked to death if they were not crushed to death by falling rocks before they expired from exhaustion. The employment of human labor was the standard mining technique right up to the 20th century, except for a process that the Romans had devised in Spain, whose gold-stuffed hills served as the backbone of the Roman economy. The Romans originally used human labor to dig as deep as 650 feet to extract the ore from the Spanish countryside, but with a new method called hydraulicking, they used powerful jets of water to break up the rock and expose the gold-bearing earth. The water came from great holding tanks, situated as much as 400 to 800 feet above the site. The method, though wonderfully efficient and productive, washed away entire mountains, destroyed farmland, and silted many rivers and harbors. Today, in the great gold mines of South Africa, the shafts reach down as far as 12,000 feet, and the temperature reaches 130 degrees Fahrenheit. As one source describes it, to produce one ounce of fine gold requires 38 man-hours, 1,400 gallons of water, electricity to run a large house for 10 days, 282 to 565 cubic feet of air under straining pressure, and quantities of chemicals, including cyanide, acids, lead, borax, and lime. The labor force employed in the South African mines exceeds 400,000 men, about 90% of whom are black. In 1511, King Ferdinand of Spain provided a time immemorial motto for gold when he declared, Get gold, humanely if possible, but at all hazards, get gold. Not all gold has to be mined. When gold is carried down by mountain streams, the prospector can wade in and sieve up the fragments of gold-bearing ore that have broken loose from the mountainside. Gold was collected long ago in this fashion by the ancient Greeks, who used woolly sheepskins for panning gold from the rivers. The tight curls of the sheep's coat did an excellent job of capturing and holding the fragments of gold as the waters came rushing down the mountainsides. The mention of fleece and gold together immediately evokes Jason and the Golden Fleece, a legend that is worth a brief digression for its moral. Phrixus, the son of the king of Boeotia, an area in eastern Greece, had been badly treated by his stepmother. So his own mother arranged for him and his sister to escape on the back of a winged ram whose fleece was pure gold. Phrixus's sister, Helle, became dizzy and fell off the ram into the sea. The point where she landed was named after her as the Hellespont. Phrixus held on. After a trip of over 1,000 miles, he was finally delivered by his ram to Colchis, on the far eastern side of the Black Sea. Happy to be safe and alive, he sacrificed the ram to Zeus and presented the fleece to the local king, Aetes. Aetes was delighted, as he had been told by an oracle that his life depended upon his possession of this fleece. Consequently, he nailed the golden fleece to a tree in a sacred grove and hired a huge, bloodthirsty dragon to guard it. Meanwhile, back in northern Greece, a king named Pelias decided that he had better get rid of his handsome and popular nephew Jason, who was trying to assert his family's claim to the throne. 
Pelias told Jason that he could have the throne if he would first perform a deed which well becomes your youth, and which I am too old to accomplish. Fetch back the fleece of the golden ram. When you return with your magnificent prize, you shall have the kingdom and the scepter. Pelias never dreamed that Jason would succeed. With the help of his Argonauts, Jason did take the golden fleece. But he would have failed had it not been for the assistance he received from Aeti's daughter, Medea, who possessed magic powers. Medea had been hit with a dart thrown by Eros and had fallen madly in love with Jason, so she used all her wiles to catch his fancy. Jason was sufficiently tempted by her to offer to take her back to Greece with him, but on the condition that she support his efforts to take the Golden Fleece. In return, Jason swore to make her his rightful wife as soon as they returned to Greece. Medea then delivered the goods by singing the dragon into drowsiness while Jason seized the Golden Fleece from the tree. The story does not have a happy ending because Jason was a compulsive social climber. From the outset, he was determined to become king of his homeland. He risked his own life and those of his friends in search of a sheepskin dusted with gold. He used a king's daughter to bear children and promised to marry her. When he returned to Greece and found that he could not succeed to the throne, he fled with Medea to Corinth. There he proceeded to woo the daughter of King Creon, but he told Medea what he was up to only after Creon had agreed to his betrothal to the princess. When Medea, inconsolable, recalled to him his solemn oath in Colchis, Jason justified himself by saying that their children would be better off because his newly betrothed had better social and political connections in Corinth than Medea did. Medea fixed him. With a fine touch appropriate to the occasion, she created a gorgeous gown made of cloth of gold and drenched it in poison. She then presented it as a gift to the bride-to-be. Delighted at the sight of this beautiful garment, the poor young woman wrapped herself in the radiant fabric and died a horrible death. Medea then completed her act of revenge by killing her own sons and flying off in a dragon-drawn chariot she had conjured up. Jason threw himself on his sword and died on the threshold of his home. The gold of Aetes' fleece had promised Jason power. That power gained him a princess who promised him a throne, but in the end, it was the gold that snuffed out both his bride and his future. Though the crowns of gold that monarchs wear on state occasions must weigh heavy on their heads, no monarch has ever chosen zinc or plastic as an alternative. Rulers for centuries have also been fond of stamping their likenesses on gold coins. The tension between gold as adornment and gold as...